Waverley Library Award for Literature and was shortlisted for the 2013 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, the Age Book of the Year Award and the Queensland Literary Awards. Jane is a PhD candidate in creative writing at the University of New South Wales and writes prolifically about everything book-related on her blog, aptly name, named Bookish Girl. Dr Libby Robin is a Canberra local and a long-standing Petrick reader here at the library. She is Professor at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University, Senior Research Fellow at the National Museum of Australia Research Centre and an Affiliated Professor at KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. She has won national and international prizes for her work in history, zoology and literature. So please join me in welcoming our highly esteemed guests to the National Library this evening. Thank you very much for that uh, warm and generous introduction. Um, I'm Julianne Schultz and it's my great pleasure to be chairing this conversation this evening with um, Brendan Gleeson, with whom I uh, co-edited uh, this edition of Griffith Review, Imagining the Future, Libby Rogan, who is a scholar here in, in Canberra. And because it's an issue about the future, we are very pleased to be able to dial, uh, dial Jane in by Skype uh, so she could join us from Sydney. And uh, so thank you, Jane, for, for being there um, on the screen. I mean, we can see you, but you can't see us. <laughs> The idea for this edition um, really came about as a conversation that Brendan, are, Brendan and I had, well, I guess about a year or so ago now, when we were talking about the, li the limits we thought were existing in terms of trying to have a conversation about what the future might be and where, where those limits were occurring um, in the academy, in public policy, in the media. Um, and, and what might be done about it. We were very conscious that there were clearly identified mega trends, you know, the big trends around climate change and automation, globalisation, urbanisation, those big movements which are reshaping the world. And yet, we, we, as we talked about it, we felt that there was, it was very hard to get a, a handle on, on how um, one could take some sort of agency over what that future might be and try attempt to sort of shape it a little bit more uh, than, than just being at the whim of, of, the, of the global forces as they were playing out. Um, and as we had that conversation, we became very aware of the sort of limits within the academy and within the media, you know, to try and even begin that process of imagining. So that was sort of where we started, which was um, of the beginning of, a, of, a, of a quite a long journey. Um, I think that one of the things became very clear as we started commissioning pieces for, for the collection and really sort of digging down into it a little bit was that, um, that there, was a sort of, there was a sort of nice um, milestone in that this year was the 500th anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia. And so you start sort of thinking utopian and, and futurist, um, that that was a sort of a good anchor point in a way for, for doing this. Um, but we were, we were also very conscious that, you know, that was all sort of rather dysfunctional and negative. And so to try and sort of get some sort of sense of how you can deal with this in a, in a positive um, and sort of almost hopeful sort of way. Um, and that's... So what, what we struck on in, in terms of the collection, and we were very 
fortunate, I mean, to have um, a really distinguished group of writers, including, for the first time in Griffith's Review, two Nobel Prize winners, rather than, <laughs> rather than just one, as, as we've occasionally done, um, when Al Gore actually decided to um, sit down and take to his study one day and write some um, responses in, in response to questions that Don Henry had, had put to him. So we have these very distinguished writers and, and thinkers involved in the edition, but we also commissioned a series of reports which were sort of um, extended <coughs> journalism, both looking at the energy um, situation in Australia, looking at medical change, medical s the evolution of medical science, the situation in relation to advanced manufacturing and also in relation to the sort of automation of the bush. And so between the sort of thought pieces, we've got these sort of very serious pieces of, of considered reporting, which I think add a really particularly strong dimension to, to the edition. Um, that won't be the subject today because this is a Canberra audience, so we're going to go for the brainy stuff. <laughs> um, and I want to uh, start that by by asking the question of each of you, whether we've got the language right to even be able to begin to address the future, to even begin to think about it. Brendan, in your piece, you write about the limits of science and the secular, um, and uh, you, you raise questions about how this might be reframed um, if, in that great phrase, the spell of melancholia is to be lifted. Thanks, Julianne. Well, uh, as is typical of me, I raise uh, questions without adequately answering them, um, <laughs> if you're referring to my own essay. Um, in my own thinking, uh, I've been an academic pretty much all of my adult life. I've tried a few other things and I wasn't a success. So um, I speak from that perspective and that experience and academe and I have a view on where it is. And I think that it has... Um, been in retreat really from the sort of place where it would has been and could be in terms of offering perspectives and language on the future um, and the, you know we could have an extended discussion about what I mean by that and why that's happened but certainly you don't I don't know whether whether you would agree but I, I don't you don't hear it in academic discourse much discussion about the future and particularly in any imaginative way it comes back in um, you know, po possibly in more mechanistic, machinic forms, like intergenerational reports that scare the living daylights out of everyone or um, presume things like population ageing are a bad thing or, or things that have to be accounted for, that kind of stuff. So I think academia is at low ebb in terms of its ability to, and its confidence in adding to, I think, a conversation that we really need to have, which is what, what sort of future not only what future are we walking into, and this, this scholarship can help us with that, forecasting and things like that, and Tim Flannery's essay I think is quite useful in helping us understand that, but um, I think it needs to do more and to help recharge our imaginative uh, batteries and energies. And it's, yeah, it's, it hasn't had um, the language. And I think you're, to do that, I think you're, just to finish, I think you're gonna ask me about Terry Eagleton and his- Later I'm gonna ask you about that. Later, <laughs> There's an example of someone who is trying to, you know, work with the language, I think, from a more scholarly perspective and say what, you know, what's right and what's not. But, but what you do interestingly in your, in your essay, and it's quite a personal essay in some ways, because mm. you're talking about the limits of your social science training, your resistance when you had your exchange with the, with the theologian um, about, you know, about the good city or the good enough city, um, and how that challenged your thinking um, as a sort of serious social scientist 
well, it's, it is a personal story. It's a um, being a bit of a Freudian. It's a story of repression kind of coming out in one way because I brought up as a thoroughgoing Catholic and I, I still, and I, I don't feel bad about that upbringing at all, actually. Um, but, you know, very steeped in all that and I would have carried it into my early, um, you know, scholarly training. But then it was a process of com subordination of that if I was to become a true academic, you know, generally. That was the way I interpreted it. I understood I had to become a secularist. I had to make that transition so in a sense what I'm saying there is there was always an uneasiness, uneasiness in myself in repressing that kind of history and the questions that still come from that personal history about um, for me they didn't just go away about the spiritual and the like um, but also recognizing that and finally I think it's better scholarship to understand that a lot of the enlightenment thinking and the, the traditions that we scholars are uh, the bearers of if you like has been informed by that sort of faith science dialogue the enlightenment was mm -hmm. really as much about that mm -hmm. as anything else mm -hmm. so there's a for me it's recognizing that in the essay and i think and making a case and i think um in these times which are dire times i think that we need more than ever to restart that dialogue mm -hmm. and so my story is a personal one about mm -hmm. how i was asked to engage a theologian around this idea of the good city mm -hmm. and it kind of rocked me to my boots a bit that mm -hmm. experience and i'm still thinking about what that means for my own outlook and my own scholarship. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting synthesis. Jane, I'd like to um, bring you in here because, y because you, you write about the way the language of economics is the lang lingua franca of, of policy, but that it's very limited. Um, and talk a little bit about how it can be reframed, taking in the six capitals of finance, manufacturing, intellectual, human, social and natural capitals. Um, but you're coming at this again in a bit like Brendan in a sense that that you're you come out of it with both a literary and an economics background and you come to some new space as a result of that so maybe you can talk about that language of economics and and its limits and its possibilities yeah thanks Julianne and it's very nice to be here on my computer um that's a very interesting segue from Brendan's because the father of modern accounting was a renaissance monk so already in you know, the modern sort of economic paradigm, and in fact, what I would say, the capitalist paradigm, there is a combination of, you know, well, there is the father of this system was a mathematician and a Franciscan friar. So uh, that's a very interesting aside. But yes, the language of economics, um, ironically, so within economics, um, as any economist knows, uh, the two very important components of 21st century and in fact all life, society and the environment are considered as externalities. Um, and economics seems at a loss to address these. But extraordinarily, I found, uh, you know, and coming from, as Julianne said, a background in literature, you know, so poetry is my first love and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I wouldn't, I'm not even an economist, but I'm reluctantly, or less so now, I was reluctantly very interested um, in economics. And I'm even less or even more reluctantly interested in accounting, but it was among the accountants that I found the revolution taking place that had uh, passed by academics, scholars, um, and certainly economists. And I think it's because accountants deal with the daily material life and the way that we do business. And they were the first to recognize that the daily functioning of business is largely destroying the planet because the sole, because businesses operate with one sole legal obligation, which is to maximize profit. 
And so they can destroy rivers, you know, cut down forests, um, ruin and sort of, uh, you know, exhaust humans and, uh, you know, local communities, and still they make a profit. So these costs, environmental and social costs, aren't considered in the regular accounts that were bequeathed to us by the Renaissance and Luca Pacioli, who um, codified bookkeeping in the 15th century. So accountants were the first to attempt to consider, and they're only just doing it now, uh, bringing in other sorts of values to their accounts. And these values are expressed, as Julia mentioned, in terms of capitals, which, are really, which is really just another word for store of wealth. So, those, so we have the traditional financial capital, which is money, and then manufactured capital, which is um, the machinery and the plant, you know, the traditional um, wealth of the, manu of the industrial era roads and infrastructure and then there are the new values uh two of which are of the information age which is intellectual capital and human capital um and that's in shorthand geeks and their software and then there's social capital and natural capital and that's the wealth of society and the wealth of nature both of which are run down um mostly in the daily activities of business and so in this accounting paradigm i found a fascinating new language that can be applied to economics um, to talk about, because equally at a national level, we are pretty much governed by the measure of GDP, and that equally does not take into account the um, destruction to nature and our social world. So we're all very well aware of the running down of our societies and our social infrastructure, as well as the destruction to the planet um, of economic growth. So I just, you know, it is a fascinating new language, which for the first time, understands that commercial activity is embedded in society and nature in a way that economics has never done before. So this is, you know, the new thinking that I'm wanting to do and that accountants and, and some economists, uh, one of which I'll speak about later, are beginning to do now, you know, so it's absolutely brand new. The new accounting paradigm was only published in December 2013. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like Brendan, I probably raise questions without answering them, but I think that's the work of the future and, you know, the imagination is to um, think out loud about possibilities, you know, and to, as, you know, we both also mentioned, to work with inter interdisciplinary, um, you know, fields so that we can sort of cross-pollinate. Yeah, look, I think that, that's, that, that raising those questions is really the crucial first step because if, we, if everything's a given, you, there's nothing to left to imagine. So I don't think either of you should apologise for, for, for asking questions. I'll come back to some of the issues raised by your book and, and the reaction to that, um, that emerging language of accountancy um, a little bit later. But Libby, can I just bring you in at this point because I think that there's a nice segue between what Jane was talking about mm. and your interest in creating a space for creativity and innovation and more expansive thinking. Yes, I, I'm a historian by training, so I'm, I've been interested in the hi history of past ideas about the future. And w one of the interesting things is that, in fact, who's the expert for the future has changed over time. In the 15th century, before the Enlightenment, the expert was the person who had a hotline to God, the prophet. You'd ask the prophet, what's happening next? What's coming up? In the 19th century, we would have had... Uh, science fiction writers, Mary Shelley, writing about Frankenstein, 1808. She was imagining the future. She was our expert. And we, so we, we had that person 
In the 1950s, C.P. Snow said scientists have the future in their bones. So the expert is a scientist in the 1950s. And now we talk about economics, the economics of the future, the accounting systems of the future. And yet e economists actually discount the future. They don't count the future when they're doing <laughs> their accounting. So I guess what okay. my piece comes out of is the mm. desire to get more futures possible, more experts, more different imaginations working together. There shouldn't be one future, there should be many futures. And that's, that's where my mm. piece is coming from, that, that passion of how do we actually think outside this box? Rather than listening to the language we're given, we should be critiquing who gets to speak. Why is it that it's always a certain sort of voice that gets heard and like you say, the theologian used to be important and then they've sort of been excluded from the, the discourse of the, of the um, academy. I mean, theology courses are actually in separate institutions in this country, but that's not true in Sweden, for example. Uh, so the theologians are part of the, of the humanities in Sweden in a way that they're not so much in Australia because we have a separation of church and state. These things matter as to who gets to speak for, for the future. I'm not, I'm not saying we need to go back to prophets and seers, but I'm just um, s saying that there are more ways of thinking about the future than just the economics of the future and, and the, the business of capitalism in the future. One of the things that you raise in your essay, which, which is published in our online extension for this edition, um, is about the way the process... The, you know the bureaucratic process constrains things, and and the example you give is the um, is the diminution. I mean the, the the extraordinary working hours that we have in Australia, and then one of the strong pieces in the, in your piece is about the, the truncated grant application process. You know and how that's sort of basically eaten the summers of of most academics, and in the case of people like Brendan who are assessing them, eaten the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, we might come back to that uh, sure. as we go along. Um, the storms this last weekend, I think, have really highlighted the, you know, the very real and present threat of, of what climate change might mean. I know it's not the sole explanation, but clearly there's a, there's a, there is a climate change dimension in what we've seen in these storms, what we saw in the, in the fires in Tasmania over the, the summer. We have a fantastic photo essay of the, the destruction mm -hmm. of those, uh, those peat forests up in the, in the Cradle Mountain area long periods of, 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 of environmental history just being obliterated. Um, and I'm just wondering, given that when you try to imagine the future, climate change is clearly one of the big, the big factors that we need to take into, 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 our, into our thinking. Um, and you've each talked about that in different ways. And I just wondered how you stop from feeling overwhelmed by the enormity of, of climate change. Um, and how you might begin to think that people have some more agency in, in responding. Brendan? Um, yeah, it's a big question. Uh, the, the awfulness of what we're being told through science, um, I work with you know, senior physical scientists uh, um, at the University of Melbourne and you know, they are very vexed and perplexed about the lack of, uh, I guess, take-up, but the, it's a, it, in popularly and the refusal and all that kind of stuff. But the message in one register is pretty awful mm. um, and now it's manifest mm. so there are more the more awful stories coming about um, you know what's going on in rural Australia now we can see this dramatic play on the coast and all that so there's a there's an awfulness um, and 
what do we do about that? Well, my, my one an area that I have an interest and a concern, a burning concern as a parent, is in young people. And I think if we, there's evidence that they are really doing this hard with the awfulness. And, uh, and if we lose them and their spirit and faith in, in the future and an ability to imagine a safer and better future, then we've lost a lot, um, more than we should tolerate. Um, I was at the World Environment Day function at Melbourne University the other day, and there's Kate Orty, who's your new ACT Commissioner of Environment, a uh, wonderful person who we've let go to come mm. up here. Um, after Kate spoke, and Kate's very good, I'm sorry if I'm drawing you out and embarrassing you, Kate, but Kate's very good at talking about, well, what's the alternative? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. Let's do something better. Mm. It's underway. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, that's a narrative. Where can we go? What are we doing? Um, here it comes, something better. That performative thing, uh, I think, is really, really important uh, area of practice for us as, as people who might feel they have the opportunity for leadership in the space. Um, and just to close that comment, it, it was revealing to me that the young student environment officer who spoke after Kate came up to me after she's been leading the divestment campaign at Melbourne and Melbourne's still dragging its feet on that issue. And she said to me, I don't think she'd mind me saying it in this context, she is really frightened about mm. the future. And she's an activist striving, but in a, in a relaxed moment off stage, she said, you know, we're really, really frightened. So I think we have to really, really take that into account because where that leads, um, we get great people like that who will still commit to activism but are suffering. But where it does lead otherwise, and I hear this from colleagues who teach in commerce and business, they don't want to know. They don't, it's too awful and let's just get on with what we're studying here, which is microeconomics or whatever, mm. right? So there's a, it leads to disenchantment and fear, but it also leads to turning off. And I think that explains partly what's going on in middle Australia and why it, I mean, we're in the grip of, a, in the teeth of a climate emergency. Why isn't that almost the central thing in the national election? Mm. It's because a substantial proportion of the electorate have turned off. Mm. Mm. And that, you know, I'm, I'm yet again raising questions without answering them. So I'm sorry about that. That's good. Libby, you, 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 you have uh, you know, you're involved with students. I mean, is that something that you're finding as well? Um, I, I find students, uh, I work with an, in a school of environment society and people really want to make a difference, the people who I work with, and they, they are actively engaged and generally incredibly positive. But I think the people who are trying to find a single solution from above are really depressed. There isn't one. But the, uh, if you work with artists and performance and the cultural institutions, actually there's a lot of hope. Um, I've been working in Germany in the House of the Cultures of the World with a, a big group of people looking at positive responses, ways of getting people engaged and switched on. But it's a lot of little things. So you have to frame the problem in a way that one person can make a difference, not that it's too big for me to make any difference at all. And so I, I think that the reframing of climate change as an issue, we've got, to, we've got to do something other than put sandbags under houses that are already falling off cliffs. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely... It's a, it's a metaphor for our times, so those images mm. of, of the sandbagging. I mean, it's too late. Mm. And we, mm. everything about that storm has been predicted. It's a little earlier than predicted, but it, there's nothing... It, the, those houses on that cliff cannot be saved. We have to do something different. Not, we have to be kind to those people 
but actually those houses can't be saved and we don't want to lose lives as well as houses. Mm. Jane, you're nodding there. Um, do I take it that you were somewhat surprised to find that accountants were feeling some agency in, in this? Or Yeah, I, I find... Um, Libby's comment earlier about which sort of dismissed um, accountants and economics is part, well, it's not part of the problem, but I think one of the great tragedies of today is that the arts discard, you know, economics and accounting because they, you know, because they have been so complicit in creating, you know, a world that of, you know, inequality and, and the destruction of the environment. So when I see that these well, it's not economics yet, but it's accountants coming, trying to come to terms in very kind of particular ways with the great problem of climate change, then I am paying attention to those accountants because they're working with the material world. And, you know, there's, I think I might talk about it a bit later, but there's a new sort of corporation that's been invented in America. It was invented in 2006 called the Benefit Corporation, which is kind of... Um, analogous with this new accounting paradigm because it has invented a corporation that must make a positive material contribution not just to financial wealth but to society and the environment and unless we can change the way that we do business every day which provides our food our clothing our housing our, you know the material uh, uh, you know part, the material components of our lives then we're not going to change anything so I think it's I think it's a mistake to, you know, because I am initially trained in literature and only subsequently in economics and accounting. Uh, so I would much, I'd be much happier sitting around writing a poem or, you know, writing a novel or writing about literature, which is what I started out doing, than being, you know, in the mess of accounting and economics. It's not a very pleasant world and it's tediously boring, but I think it's incredibly important because it's there that the material world gets, or, you know, the, the matter of our earth. Um, is managed and transformed into the things that make our lives possible, including the buildings that stand on those cliffs and including the sandbags that may or may not support them, and including the possible walls that may, you know, eventually support the structures that remain. So, you know, if we, if we sort of ignore the material circumstances of our lives, which is the matter of economics and accounting, then I think we do so at our peril, those of us who work with our imaginations. I think those fields need imaginative people more than ever. Mm. That's interesting. It's Brendan or Libby, do you want to respond to, to that? Or? Um, you don't have to. Well, I, I wouldn't mind saying the principle of discounting the future is is actually an, an accounting um, procedure whereby I'd you can explain that. that. needs to be reformed. Accounting is enormously flawed. Both these fields are, but they're beginning to reform it. So I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not uh, contradicting what you said then. I'm just saying that accountants, some few revolutionary accountants, are addressing exactly that, those sorts of problems. Well, I guess what I'm saying is not that we shouldn't have accountants, but that we should have more voices as well as accounting, oh, deciding what yeah. our future should I be. Think probably, I think well, you're probably think in furious agreeing. agreement on that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I was very much struck, though, as, as you were all talking, and there's a quote from um, Simon Corbell, the Environment Minister here in the ACT, in Cathy Marx's long essay about... Um, environment, e energy futures and, and what's actually happening on the ground in terms of developing a more sustainable energy sector. And he, he, she quoted him as saying, you've got the levers, 
if you want to use them. Um, I just keep telling people there are levers you can use. It struck me that that's a really, you know, it's a really, at one level, it's, it's an obvious thing to say, but on the other, it's a really important thing to say, that rather than feeling, oh, God, it's just all out there, it's all too hard. But, but in various forms of, of positions of power and influence and in the sort of ideas space even, I mean, there are, there are levers that can be used. And, and scales for those levers. Yes. I mean, I think Simon Corbell's scale mm. is, uh, the ACT is doing very well mm. in energy uh, mm. transformation because it's the sort of scale that it's possible yeah. to do it on. Yeah. So uh, some levers work on some scales yeah. and some levers work on other scales. Well, I think there's a project of um, dusting off some of the old levers and getting them moving again. Arguably, <laughs> the Victorian government did that in its most recent budget when it went out and borrowed mm. and said, you know, against the kind of neoliberal consensus and that standing order against that, um, against the institutional embedding of the accountants, Jane. I mean, it's, it's great to hear that there's innovation going on amongst academics and thinkers, and I'm certainly aware of that, but... It's not amongst academics, that <laughs> fortunately. Well, yes. Oh, not in what I'm talking about. Not all. Yes, I, I accept that. But... The, the other, the, the terrible stuff that Livia's talked about has become so deeply institutionally embedded. Mm. I mean, if you, we know that story through Michael Pusey and the way that it's just, it, it, it's, um, it has an iron-clad grip on the, um, on the bureaucracy and state treasuries and the like. So there's, a, there's an argument that we need to um, stop spooking ourselves and, and recover and get back into action, some of those old um, levers. So I, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with Simon Corbell in 2002 when he was first elected to helping to advise to set up the land development agency here and that boy did that go against the consensus that mm -hmm. you would intervene in a land market mm. against developers oh the pushback mm -hmm. we had um this is this this is that's old style thinking you can't do that anymore but you know he pushed on he led on that thing was set up arguably it's been very very successful so i think there's a story there there's all, all sorts of you know and the prime minister goes on about innovation and new mechanisms this that and the other but i think we need to turn to the old levers um mm. for another look at mm. least mm. um these well, times well i i think if history is the lever here too um tony judd who's a, a new york times journalist and historian has written about uh, our present discontents and he talks about the the normal that actually is only three decades old and sees that as limiting mm. the future, you can't think more than three decades ahead if you can't think more than three decades back. And actually, we have to be thinking 100, 1,000, 25,000 years ahead. How do we do that with, with this sort of... So there's a spatial scale as, uh, uh, that we talk about, but there's also a temporal scale that we've got to think bigger and bigger and bigger futures, and, and we've got to think of we as maybe seven generations, not just our lifetimes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it seems to me that Australia is particularly resistant to change. That we that we've lost those old levers and we haven't haven't found the new ones. Um, it seems to me that's very clear in the rhetoric in the election campaign. You know, there's a plan mm. for a new future which involves education, growth. That's about it. But there's not a sort of drilling down into what that might mean. I mean, we know that we're on the cusp of really profound changes. But if you, if you listen to what's being said in the public domain at the moment, you would actually have no serious sense of what's really at stake. Um, and so there's a sort of, you know, there's a gap, obviously, in, in the political language. Um, I'm just interested in, in whether there are lessons that we can learn from, from, from elsewhere about how change occurs. 
and Jane, I want to come to you first because your book, Six Capitals, the most recent one, I mean, has, an ex has had an extraordinary reaction internationally. Um, I mean, it was voted one of the top 20 business books in the US last year. I mean, you've been speaking at seminars in the US and Europe, you know, extensively. What has been the reaction in Australia? Uh, shall we say muted? <laughs> and um, I think that, well, I should say that the UK only caught on last year. Um, so Australia may, this may be the year for Australia. But I mean, I think the sorts of comments, and obviously I'm, I'm not, explaining this clearly enough because the sorts of comments that Brendan Libby are making are about an accounting paradigm and a neoliberal state currently existing which are not at all what I'm talking about um and you know I mean we know. oh good this is why we want you to talk that hasn't even yet been realized which is part of imagining the future um and and it's it's because of the power of those metrics um that govern you know i loved both your essays and like this particular you know um libby's essay on the metrics that govern scholarly work um is heartbreaking and you know we're all we've all experienced it firsthand but um i think it's because those numbers and that sort of neoliberal thinking is so powerful and so pervasive that we have to find ways to think around it or beyond it you know, imagine our way ourselves out of it because it's, you know, it's got a watertight grip on, certainly on public policy. Um, so, yes, how, how I, you know, I, I mean, I think Australia is very slow to um, to take up the ideas in my book, but they're, you know, they're elusive and and maybe complex. Mm. Brendan, you, you, you were struck by Al Gore's response to this thing about how you imagine an alternative and, the f and, and how that might be progressed. Um, you know, his thinking has sort of changed. Um. Yeah, I, I, I'm no expert on uh, Mr Gore, but we've had at Melbourne some uh, interaction with him through a couple of visits over the last couple of years. And uh, Don Henry, who may be known to many people, has joined our institute and works quite closely with Al Gore. So what's the story there? Al Gore, as many w would know, has been a you know, leading global figure and in pushing, including through cultural forms, awareness of and response to the global warming, the climate emergency and all that kind of stuff. Um, and as, as I understand it, he's been, you know, he's incredible energy. He's up in, with Don Henry in... Beijing at the moment. He just keeps going around the world, training, training, influencing, all that kind of stuff. So his narrative. And but what I wh what I sensed, and um, Don believes to be the case, his narrative has shifted um, to a little bit, somewhat less now, on talking about the emergency and just talking about the new society that's going to emerge and it's coming. Um, it's mm. on its way, and that found a particularly powerful and receptive audience. It was a particularly powerful. Sorry. Uh, message and found a very receptive audience at the University of Melbourne last year when he came and spoke to about a thousand students and so he did the kind of the horror slides the cooking planet in five minutes mm -hmm. the rest of it was about the opportunities of the new economy mm -hmm. and he's actually you know the connecting back with Jane he's now just going around the sort of Maginot line of neoliberalism and just saying there's a new economy coming mm -hmm. right we're dragging our heels mm -hmm. here not in the ACT but uh, elsewhere but it's just it's coming it has mm, to come mm. and it's going to be full of new opportunity so it comes back to that question about how we deal with this awfulness and horror he's uh, he's quite mindful of that mm, I think and mm. so he's practicing this mm. different narrative and a lot of the leadership is coming from the business end because it's actually 
th th this is where the, the future opportunities mm. for business are too. Mm -hmm. So there's no question that that, uh, that the conversations, that I guess the political conversations are probably the most mm. conservative. Mm. Mm. We've got interesting yeah. things happening in climate and in other arts-led initiatives in museums, performances, a lot of energy out there. Mm. And we've got a really positive... Um, there are positive models around, but there's a sort of... Ca we can't talk about climate change. Why can't we talk about climate change? What's mm. going on? Mm. What's, what's repressing that conversation? Um, I think partly we can't maintain... The we can't maintain the rage. We can't mm. be in crisis all the time. It's a long, slow burn. It's a slow catastrophe. It's got to be managed quite differently from floods and droughts and things, perhaps. Brendan, There's so much at stake here in Australia. I, I mean, I, I think I wrote a piece in Mianjin last year which tackled this question. Bruno Latour, the great French theorist at the moment, uh, uh, described the Australian... This is a year or two ago... What do you call it? The Australian strategy in a major international speech. It was in Stockholm or somewhere like that. Copenhagen, he delivered it. Oh, we'd, all around the world, everyone was talking about Latour's speech. And, oh, Australia featured. We know, I don't think we normally feature in mm -hmm. Latour's... In fact, he's going to be with us in a couple of weeks' time. But he talked about the Australian strategy of walking backwards, sleepwalking backwards into the future, if mm. I can... <laughs> right? So there's ah-ha-ha, ah, you know, Australia and you're in Europe and you go over thinking, oh, what's going on over there? And, um, you know, that kind of thing... I don't uh, hold to that um, that view of Australia. I think we've been enormously imaginative, adaptive, and we've got a, a, an incredible history of innovation and all that. And I have to reach my gum when I use that term these days, but you know what I mean. <laughs> we've, you know, but what has been particularly at stake here is power and money and resources mm. in the resource sector. In mm -hmm. the last, it's all very well to be lectured from Europe and places that don't have resource sectors. So those pa those power and those politics mm. didn't play in the mm. way they are playing out here mm. in a really dramatic and deep way. Mm. And it's, it's never quite to the surface just about what interests are at stake mm. in the carbon economy. And those interests aren't necessarily Australian. In fact, they're generally not. Exactly <laughs> so. Yeah. Jane, this is a good place to draw you back in as well. And, and your work, your, you draw on Kate Raworth's work from Oxford, and, and she describes the donut of possibilities between the, the, the environmental constraints and the, and, this constra and the capacity for human, um, you know, what people can actually do. Um, it's quite a different sort of tool. Do you, do you want to just describe that because it answers some of the stuff that the others have been saying? Well, very briefly, um, she's an amazing economist, young economist working in Oxford who is trying to get away from the idea of, you know, the economic sort of idea of economic growth and this endless planet, you know, available to be exhaustively mined and, um, you know, littered and polluted and destroyed, you know, which is not factored into regular economic models. So um, I think you mentioned in, in your essay, Brendan, the need for limits. And so she agrees with this and, you know, conventional economics has no limits. And she imposes two limits on her new model of economics, which she sees as two um, circles, one inside the other. The outer circle is the environmental um, ceiling beyond which the planetary boundaries can't be pushed um, if human life is to be sustainable. And there are nine different um, planetary boundaries. They were set up by Rockstrom et al. Um, in an essay in Nature in 2009, and they include things like climate change and um, 
biodiversity loss and um, fresh water. So all the things that human and other life require um, on the planet. And then there's the inner circle of um, all the social foundation and they are um, seven key or the 11 top priorities that were um, agreed upon by governments in the run up to Rio 20, um, which are the limits below which human life cannot um, happily exist on the planet. So they are things like um, food, water, energy, education, health. And so this is just her beginning. Her book isn't being published till next year. Uh, her book sort of expounding this, but this is just her sort of imagined beginning um, to a new way of thinking about economics with, and, you know, so human life can subsist within these or exist, happily coexist within these two boundaries, boundaries which don't exist in contemporary um, economic paradigms. So, yes, that's her attempt to imagine the future of economics. Can I, can I just chip in on that? Just very briefly. Yeah. Um, the uh, Kate... Um, Kate Ray's work is most important with Oxfam, which is, yep. of course, an NGO. This is a really interesting place for economics to be happening. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and, and Rockstrom et al. work, the Stockholm Resilience Centre, which is actually a part of the Academy of Science, mm -hmm. not yeah. just Stockholm University. Mm -hmm. it's, so we're we actually seeing different sectors weighing in mm -hmm. and doing really interesting things on the edge. I think sometimes universities caught in their own large systems and it's harder to do m more innovative edgy yeah, things absolutely. than than say with Oxfam um, and and the uh, Stockholm yeah. Resilience Centre. Yeah. That's a fantastic point um, Libby. Kate published her big essay about what she calls donut economics a little unfortunately I think um, given the obesity crisis but she calls her system donut economics and she published the essay um, in an Oxford uh, Oxfam think piece and only subsequently has become, she's a fellow at Oxford University where she teaches sustainable economics. Mm. So yes, that's a really fantastic point. Well, as somebody who's been in favour of synthesis, you know, which is what we do with Griffiths Review, I'm, I'm all in favour of this. Now, I want to ask you each one quick question before we go to questions from the audience, and it's a bit cheeky. Um, I'm wondering, given that we're in the middle of an election campaign, I'm wondering if each of you could describe what an election campaign that was really concerned about the future and aware of the global constraints might look and sound like rather than the rhetoric that we've been putting up with of a plan, a plan, a plan, um, and so on. So just quickly. Should we start with, with Jane so she doesn't miss out? <laughs> well, I'll be very brief because, um, you know, just spontaneously my election campaign or, you know, the ideal one that I would like to hear would start with the Barrier Reef as its foundation and acknowledging that that is not only one part of the most or part of the most critical or probably the most critical wealth of Australia, um, but also the planet. And, you know, everything would be would sort of go from there. So how best can we change the way that we do business to, you know, so we're not mining um, and transporting um, carbon emitting ore through the reef and how then do we change our science and our thinking and our politics and our communities and the way that we live so that we so that preserving the reef is our number one national priority. Libby? I've, well, I was very impressed with Q&A on Monday night. I think town hall meetings in Tamworth tell you what people in Tamworth are concerned about and we need politicians who represent their electorates a little more closely. Mm -hmm. 
Brendan? Um, you're asking us to fantasise. So, I am indeed, um, yes. A free feel. I would think it would look, my perfect one would look, for the moment, would look something like I imagined it was after World War II when there was a great feeling that after being through those cataclysms of depression and war, uh, you know, basically system breakdown, we need a new dispensation. And I wish we had an election that was uh, striving at different models from conservative to aggressive, but saying we need a new dispensation mm. and final sentence and a national conversation that put to the front and centre uh, indigenous peoples and indigenous knowledge to finally help us to better understand what, what, how do we really get some long-term dispensation that allows us to live sustainably in Australia. Mm. Okay, good. That'd be a good start, all three. Um, okay, now I've got, I'd like to take some questions from the audience. Um, but first of all, I want to single out Liz Bolton, if you... you Liz, you, you wrote a very interesting piece that was in the conversation yesterday about the importance of, of getting the arts into, into this uh, climate conversation. I just wonder whether you either want to say something or ask a question of the, of the panel. There's a microphone beside you. Yeah, thank, thanks. Is that working? Yeah, uh, thanks so much. Um, yeah, it, when in the discussion about transdisciplinarity, um, I, I've got a literature background as well, but I, I found a lot of answers ab about um, the problems with people responding to climate has, have come from the sciences, from um, cognitive science and brain science. And the, the irony of um, a lot of this amazing uh, innovation in brain science is that it tells us that our most important um, guides for helping us to survive um, since we've been, you know, um, you know, ape-like is um, our feelings and our senses and that the, the neuron pathways in our brain um, form as a secondary process to us picking up um, sensory signals from our environment. And um, one of the examples is that, you know, we're born with this very mushy brain and um, which, but the way we we can live in the Arctic or we can live in the Sahara or we can live in any sort of environment is because we take in sensors from our environment that allow us to build these new one pathways like a software package which allows us to survive. Um, and so this conclusion is that us as moderns, we don't have the right software package at the moment and thinking's not going to cut it because the <laughs> our thinking is defaulted. Um, and so we have to go back to the getting the sensory signals of what we're facing um, correct and the emotional signals. Um, and so fear is not necessarily a bad thing because um, ev evolutionary psychologists explain that um, it's a very important signal for us to hear that fear. Mm. It's telling us something very important. And that's how we survive, by hearing those emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and even the positive emotions, like I'm hearing in Jane's voice, the excitement and the happiness when she talks about the possibilities um, with the counting. And it's, 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 that's telling us something, that feeling. But when we talk about neoliberalism, we get that hardened Ooh. feeling. <laughs> that's telling us something. So that's why I'm saying artists um, are so important because our brains are stuck. We have to get these sensory emotional things happening. Mm. And that's why... Um, we need them. Excellent. <laughs> so that's why I was yeah. writing. We need sixty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> th thank you. That's a very that's a very good contribution. And and, and, and indeed, Libby's the image of the sandbag sandbag houses in in, in the beach um, near Sydney, uh, in Collaroy, is actually probably one of those images which cuts through in a way that's um, you know it, it takes to an emotional space. Um, there are a couple of other questions. There's a person in a blue jumper and a guy in this jacket over here. 
Ben mentioned um, externalities and the way um, can you that's can you just uh, can you hold fiddle your pen? Uh, is that how's that? Yes, that's better. Mm. So Jane mentioned externalities and the way that social and environmental factors are external to the consideration of economics. And I want to know whether people think um, we can reform economics by internalizing those externalities, or is um, capitalism fatally flawed? Jane, this one for you. <laughs> yeah, that's a fantastic question, and I have to say it's one I ask myself almost every day. Um, and that really is the absolute knife-edge dilemma that I sit on because internalising externalities, um, you know, so I started out thinking, of course, we have to internalise externalities because uh, I was very persuaded by Raj Patel's example of a $200 hamburger, which I'll briefly describe which is effectively, if we internalised all the social and environmental costs of a Big Mac, it would not be $4, which it was at the time of Raj Patel's thought experiment, but it would be $200. So that would make the price signal, you know, so that we wouldn't just randomly drive by and get a Big Mac on the way home because it would be $200. Um, so I started out thinking that internalising externalities was the way to go in this new accounting paradigm attempts to do that. But, of course, that is part of a neoliberal sort of capitalist agenda, and I do think capitalism is deeply flawed, uh, and I would like to hasten its demise. So that is what <laughs> makes me look beyond it to the benefit corporation, which thinks, you know, beyond the profit motive, and also which got me. I, I totally love and support uh, Brendan's comment about uh, Indigenous knowledge and ways of understanding this continent as uh, being, you know, incredibly important for the future and or the present and the past. Um, and so at the end of my book on this new accounting paradigm in my despair and asking myself that question, I looked to other ways of thinking about valuing the natural world and, you know, the other so-called non-financial values that this new accounting paradigm sets out. And I found myself um, in Bolivia and, you know, other places in Central America where they've enshrined the rights of Mother Nature and they're trying to elevate nature, you know, to the equivalent of human beings giving it rights so that it can stand in court and contest development and human um, in economic needs in its own right. So, yes, I mean, your question, I ask it to myself every day. <laughs> Um, uh, I recently came across a, a discussion where the work of Peter Victor was being talked about, which was um, a world without growth, where yeah. he modelled a trajectory um, that said if you did something radical now, it would never work. If you waited too long, it would never work. But if you plan a decade or two decade long strategy to get to zero growth, that's the only hope for kind of a, a balanced uh, global uh, environment. I just wondered whether there were any comments on on that view because the growth paradigm is the capitalist paradigm and the biggest problem is that we believe we have to grow and therefore we're trapped in the paradigm. Yeah. Brendan, do you want to? Um, yes, and I think this connects with the discussion just um, previously. I, my understanding of capitalism, uh, I'm persuaded by political economy, which tells us that it either grows or it, it doesn't exist or it dies. It's hardwired for growth. Well, I've written about this, so um, the writings of David Harvey, but many others, that 
compound material growth is is um, absolutely essential for markets and market society and that kind of thing. So the idea that we can shift it to some other more benign non-compounding model or um, a, a model that doesn't grow or a model that has somehow has uh, benevolent forms of growth I think is actually fiction ultimately. And I do think though that the, the market, the capitalist system as it is now is in a really serious and possibly epochal and terminal crisis. It's suffering a crisis of overproduction of which global warming is a, uh, a sign of that to some extent that really appears insoluble uh, and now the growth of whole fictive capital and other non you know, forms of um, capitalism are only throwing up more and more dilemmas so um, I think that's to play out and I think we're in the teeth of that thing playing out and um, so I think whether one subscribes to an anti-capitalist view or not it behoves us to prepare for something else and to think about, imagine the future based on other political economic models. Maybe okay. we have to rescue the futures, uh, the future from the futures market. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well said. I'm very keen on the non-growth uh, model. Uh, it's not Kate Raworth's model. She's still vested in some sort of sustainable economic growth, which is an oxymoron, of course. Um, uh, but I am interested in, there's a new sort of way of thinking, another circular one called the circular economy. And for example, in Cowra in New South Wales, there's something called the Cowra Low Emissions Action Network Clean. And there are many of them around the world, um, which try and reuse all the waste that they've generated and, um, you know, remanufacture things and so recycle everything. So in, in other words, the waste of their community is used to, you know, generate energy and other things. So that's a model that I'm, that I think is a way of the future and it's very interesting. I think on that note, which is, touches on the sort of question of hope, which we didn't explore in, in great detail, but, but I think that there are lots of examples of reasons to be hopeful um, that, that we should hang on to. I mean, it's, it's difference between hope and optimism, which I think is an important distinction. So I'd like to thank you all very much for your generosity and um, brains that you've brought to this conversation. I think it's been a very interesting one and I'd like to thank you for being involved in it and you for participating. Thank you.